For almost 100 years, blast furnaces burned in the steel mills of Youngstown, Ohio. Tens of thousands of men and women gave their lives to the mills, and in return, the mills gave Youngstown life. Working there was a rite of passage, passed down through the generations, as it was when Gerald Dickey, a third-generation steelworker, showed up for his first day. Oh, I was terrified. Oh, what kind of hell did I get into? <laughs> Steam leaking everywhere, dirt, filthy, it's in the air. And, and then the noise, the, the further you get in, the louder it gets. The train is coming there, you got to watch crossing the tracks. Down to the pits, the poured steel sparks were flying everywhere. It's like the worst nightmare. And I got halfway through it and I said, I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna die in this place, I'm gonna get killed. But Gerald stuck through that day, and thousands more like it, until everyone at the plant knew him, and he knew everybody. I could tell how long a guy's gonna be here by what he's carrying, the lunch. There's the guy with the stainless steel, the old coal miner bucket with the round handles. That's a 30-year man. The guy carrying the brown paper bag, he's here for eight hours. Never did buy a lunch bucket. Just did 31 years and never bought a lunch bucket. <laughs> it's hard to understand. Every, every day it was the best. It would exhaust you. You know, it's not easy work, you know. I smoked, it's dirty in there, and everything is wrong if you want to be healthy, you know. But uh, it was a very social kind of place. Stopping and talking to guys and this and that. It's, it's like a big family. As I look back on the whole thing, if that was still there, I'd have never left it. Always some guys that come in early, just to hang around or whatever, get a cup of coffee. So we're all sitting around up there shooting the breeze. And somebody comes in and says it was just on the radio that the sheet and tube's going to close camel. Ladies and gentlemen, the news we've received this morning from Youngstown Sheet and Tube is just the worst possible news that we as your elected public officials could have received. On September 19, 1977, Youngstown Sheet and Tube, a steel mill that had been in business for more than 70 years, shut its doors without warning. 5,000 steel workers, many of them skilled veterans of 20 to 30 years, lost their jobs. Initial reaction with most people was disbelief. It's hard to believe this is happening. After working here for so many years, it's hard to believe that we're put out on the street and don't know what we're going to do. They were told to clean out their lockers. A lot of guys had their, their paper bags full of their work shoes, their clothes, and they just threw it in the river. It was just total shock. In Youngstown and nearby Campbell, they have a name for the day disaster struck, Black Monday. Youngstown steel mills were becoming too expensive to run. They were outdated and dirty, and foreign steel was being made cheaper and with less manpower. The management of Sheet and Tube decided to cut their losses. This action relates to our need to generate cash. And over the next several years, other steel mills would close too. United States Steel has also announced that it will let its mills in Youngstown run down. The closing of Briar Hill will cost 1,400 steel workers their jobs. The bottom line, the profitability, Nothing else mattered. General Fireproofing is leaving. General Motors Packard Electric laid off more than a thousand workers. I mean, there's a whole community here. 
Its reason for its existence is those mills. The whole life of Youngstown is being thrown aside for the sake of profit. And without notice, without warning, without anything, it's taken away. It's like dropping a bomb. Bitterness and anger spilled over many times tonight. Well over 300 steelworkers, most of them from Youngstown, picketed angrily. Their intent made clear by their chance. In the end, when the protests were over, when local and national politicians made promises that were never fulfilled, when the mill owners cut and ran, the steel shutdown in Youngstown cost 50,000 workers their jobs. And Youngstown became the first victim in what would later be called the Rust Belt. Uh, Youngstown is a dramatic, sharp, sudden heart attack. But throughout the country, this, this cancer of jobs disappearing out from under communities, people sense it may be their own community next. There used to be a saying in Youngstown that the big employers were the steel mills and the mob. But at the close of the 70s, only one institution was still hiring. The mob war in Youngstown had been quiet for a decade, but the mob still had its fingers in every aspect of society. When I came to town in 79, I knew about organized crime. But what I didn't know is just how deeply entrenched it was. I'm Mark Smerling. Welcome to Crooked City. Youngstown was known as a steel town, and everybody had an image of a steel town as being a rough, rotten, no-good town. Just let these gangsters go and kill themselves. I think Youngstown would be a better place to live. The mob at Youngstown, Mahoney County, it's like they were always there. It was the Cleveland-Pittsburgh thing. Two mobs, and we're in the middle, they would clash. They bombed Cadillac Charlie and hurt the kid. People didn't like that. The nation's underworld gets the unwelcome spotlight of publicity. The FBI shut down all the gambling. From what I could see, the mob just went underground. Chapter 3. Jim Trafficking for Sheriff. To me, my focus was the newspaper. That became the center of my being. I decided that, okay, whatever happens in the community, my bearings would begin with the newspaper. This is Bertram D'Souza. In 1979, as the steel mills were closing, Bertram came to Youngstown to work as a reporter for the Youngstown Vindicator, the local newspaper of record. Bertram had emigrated to the U.S. from Uganda and had covered the civil rights movement in Selma and organized crime in Milwaukee. But Youngstown was unlike any other place he'd been. Somebody came up to me and said, hey, you need to go to the Briar Hill Italian Festival. So I go there. It's all outdoors. But as I walk into the area, there's this long table and there were all these guys sitting at the table, and there's this line of people walking up to them, and some shaking their hands, some kissing their hands, and all of that. I said, what the hell's going on up there? And the person started laughing and says, uh, those are the guys. I said, what guys? He said, you know, the mobsters. 
I said, you're kidding me. Right out in the open. The shadow of the Catholic Church. <laughs> right away, Bertram went to work researching the mob in Youngstown and found a long tradition of local politicians being owned by the mafia. The intersection of organized crime and politics in the Mahoning Valley, the Steel Valley, was so strong that I automatically began writing about that. There were few people the mob couldn't buy. From the lowest beat cop to county prosecutors and judges, they could erase a gun charge, make a DUI disappear, or bury a murder rap. Corruption is part of our DNA. But there was one person the mob made sure to own. In Mahoning County, the mob always had the sheriff because the sheriff had the ability to turn a blind eye to illegal activity, bottle clubs, late-night things, gambling. In other words, the sheriff held the keys to the mob's income. And all this corruption was an open secret in Youngstown. Average people like Gerald Dickey had known about it for years. A lot of the local people were not honest. They're not only not doing what they should do, they're helping themselves more than they're helping the voters. In the wake of the steel mills closing, unemployment in Youngstown hit double digits. Crime was rising, and there was a new and growing problem, drugs. In 1980, a race was about to get underway to decide who would be the new sheriff of Mahoning County. I was covering Youngstown City Government. One of the managers one day says to me, I'd like you to meet somebody, so why don't you come to the house? And I said, sure. And we're sitting in the living room, and and all of a sudden the door opens, and the entire door is filled by this individual who comes bounding in, looks at me, grabs me in a bear hug, and says, I'm Jim Trafficking, and I'm going to be the sheriff. In his younger days, Jim Trafkin was famous in Youngstown as a college football star. Now he was a drug counselor, the kind of guy who would show up on the local news to tell parents about the latest drug craze their kid might be into. The major drug that's frightening us today is fencyclidine, or PCP, known as angel dust. And that was present in almost 40 cases. Real about this thing, Andrea, that a lot of these pipes that cost $500 with fancy bongs and big water spouts are not to smoke tobacco. Even though drugs are very prevalent, it's not the cool thing to do. And a lot of youngsters in the last five years think that that's been the, the case. And I think that we've seen a change in Mahoney County. So Trafficking says this. And I went, oh, okay. So one day I get a call, and it is a teacher, I think it was, from one of the high schools, who said, hey, Jim Trafficking is going to be speaking at Fitch High School about drugs. So I walk in there, I walk into the auditorium, and it's jammed. And I was struck by the fact there were more parents and more adults than there were students in the auditorium. So here comes Jim Trafficking, goes up to the mic, no notes, and for an hour spoke. If you believe you're right, don't let anybody ever tell you that right is wrong. And if you don't have the courage or the conviction to stand up on your own two legs and speak what you believe is the truth, then you will have not learned a lesson from your parents, from your community, or from your school. It was his speech about the evils of drug use and the room that was pin drop silence. And I hope to God that when the time comes when you're challenged with your greatest challenge in life, that you respond positively, because if you do, you will make it. And I congratulate you. 
congratulate you for having done something in a tough town that doesn't have all the greatest of opportunities. And I went, Jesus, there's something here. Today, Jim Traficant announced he's running against Democrat George Tablack in this June's primary for county sheriff. On March 18, 1980, Traficant entered the race for Mahoning County Sheriff. And from the beginning, the odds were stacked against him. Don Hanai, the chair of the Democratic Party, was also the personal attorney for Pittsburgh Mafia Don Briar Hill Jimmy Prado. No one got the Democratic nod without say-so from the mob. And to them, Traficant was an outsider. I mean, here's this drug and alcohol counselor, you know, running for sheriff. Didn't know what they were going to get. But Trafkin was betting on the people of Youngstown to overrule the Democratic machine and the mob. I believe a small number of people have begun to control our political process. If I am elected, I want a clear-cut mandate from the people of this county so I can go in there and do the job that has to be done as sheriff. I'd go and see where he was campaigning and I'd watch he never had these huge rallies. He'd always go to church halls. Youngstown now has an opportunity to become the fine city that it really is. And I'm saying, hooray for Youngstown. We've got a good city, and it's going to get better. People would just love it. There would always be a line of people wanting to go up to him and hug him. Now, forgive me for saying this. Women especially were drawn to him. I mean, you can hug a politician, and then you can really hug a politician. <laughs> I'm standing in back watching these women. I'm going, holy Christ. <laughs> oh, Lord. I started thinking, my God, this guy has some kind of talent of connecting with common folk. He spoke their language. The narcotics problem in America is being allowed by the United States government. And God damn it, as people, we should rise up and tell them we don't want it. Trafficant was the son of a truck driver, blue collar, and he spoke directly to the downtrodden people of Youngstown, like Gerald Dickey. When the area here really needed the government, it failed, plain and simple. So here comes uh, this heroic figure. He's a likable guy, he's a champion of the working class, and they come across as the tough guy, and I'm sure he was. I'm sure he could duke it out with anybody. But Trafkin only wanted to duke it out with the political establishment and the growing threat of drugs. We do not produce domestically cocaine. We do not produce heroin. Why should our kids and why should our country be suffering? He wanted to get the dealers. You know, I want to lock them up, you know. I'm going to shut these guys down. That narcotics network has never truly and totally been addressed. And it is still virgin grounds for me as sheriff. Once an outsider with little chance of success, Trafficking won the primary and became more and more popular with the people of Youngstown. Finally, somebody's open around here. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise. The island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies. 
The podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark disappeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios. Wherever you get your podcasts. One thing I'll say about most of the people from around here, they were very skeptical of anybody outsider coming in. This is retired FBI agent Bob Croner. Croner had arrived in Youngstown in 1976 as part of the FBI's renewed interest in stifling organized crime. But locals didn't welcome the help. People wanted gambling. They wanted prostitution. This is Youngstown. We're a blue-collar, tough town, and we want it this way. And providing all of this illegal activity was the mob. The roots of the mob had grown so deep in Youngstown, Croner knew he had his work cut out for him. You can't work organized crime in three or four years and be successful. It's not going to happen. There's too much you need to learn and know. And slowly but surely, getting people that were a little higher than this guy and maybe a little higher than that guy, climbing your way up to finally eradicate the top. After the bombing of Cadillac Charlie Cavallero, the mob had gone quiet. But tensions between the Cleveland and Pittsburgh factions were rising again. Rumor was that the families were going to war. Croner's first job was to find out who the players were. We had gotten a wiretap in the Calamar restaurant. Jimmy Prado's place. Jimmy Prado was... By that time, the big man. Briar Hill Jimmy Prado ran the rackets in Youngstown for the Pittsburgh mob. He was one of the guys at the Italian festival with everyone kissing his ring. And he owned a lot of local politicians. It was not unusual for the Mahoning County treasurer to be out at the Calamar. And you could see the head of the Democratic Party there, plus some of the organized crime figures. One of the regulars at the Calamar was Joey Naples a slight, serious-looking Italian in his 40s who traveled with his lieutenant, Paul Holovodic, a.k.a. Pinto. Little Joey was Prado's right-hand man. Joey Naples' black Lincoln was parked on the side of the building, and they're getting ready to leave. Pinto comes out first, and he crawls under the car to make sure there's no bomb on it. And we got a picture of him doing that at that time. For weeks, Kroner kept an eye on the calamar and documented who came and went. But the real dirt came from the wiretap. It turned out that little Joey Naples had a reason to be worried about a car bomb. There was an organized crime war going on between the Cleveland faction and the Pittsburgh faction. That mob war kicked off in 1977 when Naples was arrested on a gambling charge and sent to prison. Joey Naples, he went off to jail. And while he was in jail, there was a burglar by the name of Peeps Canonico that was in jail at the same time. Peeps Canonico sort of acted as Joey Naples' bodyguard while they were in jail. Naples got out of jail in one piece, thanks to Peeps Canonico. And in gratitude, Naples gave Peeps control of the rackets in nearby Trumbull County. Well, that wasn't Joey's. That was the Cleveland factions. So Joey's given him something that he doesn't even have. 
So Peeps tries to cash in on the gift. He grabs his buddy, Spider Grisham, and tries to take over the Trumbull Rackets by force. They visit one of Cleveland's bookies and put a gun in his mouth. That plan doesn't work, but it does succeed in pissing Cleveland off. Cleveland catches up with Spider first, on an early morning in December 1978. He just worked the night shift at his restaurant. The sniper's bullet hit his arm and went through his chest. He probably never saw where it came from. The cops found him face down on the sidewalk. A few weeks later, they caught up with Peeps Canonico in a Youngstown parking lot. Peeps was shot right outside the halfway house where he was transitioning back into society. <laughs> but Cleveland didn't stop there. They went after more soldiers from the Pittsburgh faction. Austintown restaurant owner Jack Tobin was gunned down here in the parking lot. They hit Black Jack Tobin, one of Naples' biggest bookies, with a shotgun blast to the chest. It was an interesting time because I'd wake up and go to work and I'd turn the radio on and the news and every week or two somebody else was killed. (laughs) While this was going on, we were gathering a lot of information. The FBI still had its wiretap in the Calamar restaurant. Jimmy Prado and Joey Naples were worried about Cleveland's retaliation, and they were specifically concerned about the man who was carrying out the hits. Joe DeRose, the hitman for the Cleveland faction. DeRose was a vicious assassin who wasn't afraid to go after anyone. Joe DeRose killed people and he liked them. And the Pittsburgh faction was afraid of him. As long as DeRose was around, he was a major threat to Pittsburgh. There was only one thing to do. Someone was going to have to kill Joe DeRose. While a war between the Pittsburgh and Cleveland Mafia factions raged in Youngstown, Phil Christopher, one of the architects of the Laguna Niguel bank heist, was stuck in prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. But he wasn't exactly doing hard time. I ran the institution in Terre Haute, honest to God. I had to go alive, believe me. (laughs) Phil had been in for a few years, and during that time he'd become a jailhouse accountant kind of like Andy Dufresne in The Shawshank Redemption. I did the payroll. The guards, the lieutenants, the captain. And in return for this service, the guards took care of Phil. They drop off little presents. I come in in the morning sometimes, I, I find a little pint of vodka or something. Over the years, Phil's privileges grew. He could get out of his cell, hang out with his buddies, and do a little cooking. Friends of mine that were locked up in other institutions tried to get over where I was because they knew I ran the place. I did everything except get a girl in there or uh, get out. But that changed in 1980, when Phil got paroled early. Back on the street, he fell back into his old habits and caught up on what was happening with his old friends. Joe DeRose over there in Youngstown with his uh, Dick Hinkle, they were uh, killing guys sort of left and right there. While Phil was on the inside, DeRose had become the Cleveland faction's most prolific hitman, which for Phil was a little surprising. I knew Joe very well. Matter of fact, I knew his parents. He was a good friend of mine. I could imagine Joe being like that. I mean, it was like night and day. I went over his house, see how things go and so forth. I got there maybe around 10 o'clock, 10.30. 
It was in the morning. And Joe's over there. He's drinking. He's popping pills. And he said, Jesus Christ, you don't take it easy. I mean, he was off the hook. I listened to him talking and telling me how they got Jackie Tobin, Peeps Canonical, Spider Grisham. <laughs> and they were laughing about it. They made me very uneasy just being around them. Earlier that year, a man was walking through a garbage dump in Struthers and saw a foot sticking out of the snow. It was the body of Pittsburgh Mafia associate John Magda. Youngstown police figure John Magda was found bound by duct tape buried in a Struthers garbage dump. We felt that Magda was killed because uh, he had talked to someone. The reason for that is the way we found the body. Magda was wrapped head to toe in duct tape, like a mummy. Taped up like that, especially the face and mouth. That's a message that somebody said something they shouldn't have said. There were no wounds on Magda's body, indicating he may have been immobilized by someone he knew, then suffocated by duct tape. <laughs> Joe's telling me about how he got John Magda and hit him with a stun gun, tied him up with duct tape, and they threw him out to die, you know. He said he was flapping around like a fish, you know, like that. John Magda was a goofball. He, he was harmless. I mean, that, that, that was a senseless kill. There was no reason behind that. That's when I knew Joe was off the hook. Big time, not a little bit. He is totally off the hook. The Pittsburgh faction wanted Joe DeRose gone. But if you want to kill someone as dangerous as Joe DeRose, you don't come at him directly. You recruit someone close to him. I got a call from this Bob Pogan, who was uh, tight with Joey Naples. He asked me uh, to meet him at this uh, German restaurant in uh, Youngstown. Pogan didn't know which side I was on. They were worried that I was going to go on Joe DeRose's side. I said, no, I, said, I, I don't want no part of Joe DeRose. It's only a matter of time before he gets it because he's off the hook. So Pogan made Phil an offer help kill DeRose, and Naples would give him the numbers racket in nearby Lordstown. A lot of money. And I said, oh, sounds good, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, sounds all right. It got to the point that uh, we had to take down Joe DeRose. We had to get him. By this time, DeRose had gone into hiding, and even his old friend Phil couldn't find him. Behind where his girlfriend was a graveyard, some nights we would go by the graveyard with the star scope and we'd be looking for him. We rented an apartment across the street from his girlfriend's house. We had her phone bugged and we were trying to catch him. But Phil wasn't the only person trying to keep tabs on DeRose. While he watched DeRose's girlfriend's house, FBI agent Bob Croner was across town watching DeRose's apartment. We were able to get a business to let us observe the parking lot of Joe DeRose's apartment. They'd even set up surveillance cameras to record visitors. One night, weather factor and the cameras steamed up. You couldn't see anything out of the cameras. We ended up, we broke off early because you couldn't see anything. That was the night that Joe DeRose came home with his girlfriend. DeRose and his girlfriend, Cheryl Durkin, pulled into the parking lot outside his apartment. 
two men were lying in wait in the carport. It was like they moved in slow motion, and you didn't even hear them. They were just standing there, and they were pointing guns at us. And Joey yelled, oh, God, no. The Rose went down with a gunshot wound to the neck. Durkin had been shot in the chest. I was hit, and I didn't even realize it. The two men quickly fled the scene, but they hadn't finished the job. Joe DeRose survived. DeRose was only in the hospital a short while before he checked himself out. He knew that if he stayed there any longer, Pittsburgh's muscle would come and finish the job. They would be looking for him at his apartment, so he spent a few months laying low at his father's house in Youngstown, right down the street from the home of FBI agent Bob Croner. I was sitting at home. There was another agent that didn't live far from me that in his spare time used to sit and monitor the police radio. And uh, he heard the call that Joe DeRose had been killed and called me and said, you know, what do you want to do? I said, well, let's get over there. We went over to the scene and we were there maybe as quick as the police department was there. Croner saw a man's body sprawled out on the driveway, his shirt soaked with blood. But it wasn't the guy he thought it was. Joe had parked his car in the driveway and went off with someone else. These guys watching Joe DeRose, they said, we got his car. Joe DeRose's dad went to move the car and they just mistook the father for him. Once you're already there with your gun pointed at somebody, he said, oh, you're not the guy. No, you're now the guy. So they killed the father. Joe DeRose Jr., the target of what federal agents call a gangland hit, but the wrong man is dead. DeRose's 61-year-old father, mortally wounded by a single shotgun blast in the driveway of his... As it had been after the murder of Cadillac Charlie Cavallaro and his son, the Youngstown community was outraged. Now there seems to be more emphasis to get to the bottom of this because of the murder of Joseph DeRose Sr. This cycle's innocent victim. And even hardened criminals like Phil Christopher were outraged too. They just uh, were stupid and careless. I was upset because I liked his father. His father was a nice guy and his mother was a nice person. And that's when I backed away from all of them. So I don't have nothing to do with this. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch, involved in a then-unheard-of secret organization called the Illuminati, and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. We had a wiretap in the Calamar restaurant, and Steve Jigger was the assistant United States attorney at the time, and he wanted us to put microwave television in there so that we could see who the people were that were talking. This caused us a real problem. To get video out of there, 
we had to run wiring through the roof. We're not roofers. Right after we installed this thing, we got a torrential rainfall. They must have used the wrong tar because the roof leaked. That caused us to go back in, try to vacuum up the wet carpeting and everything. Can you imagine? There's the FBI in there with their wet backs trying to vacuum up the carpet so these guys wouldn't know that we were in there. But it ended up leading to the downfall of that wiretap. The guys are sitting on a wire one day and you hear one of them, hey, what's it is? And you can hear them pulling the microphone. We got people, we stormed in there to try to get our stuff back. And we found a couple of guns laying around the floor and stuff like that. But uh, that was the end of that wiretap. This ladder symbolizes the efforts of the FBI locally to get to the top and try to unravel the web. Concealed in the ceiling of the Calamar restaurant in Beaver Township was sophisticated video recording equipment discovered when the roof leaked. The Calamar's owner, Pittsburgh boss Jimmy Prado, summoned his high-powered attorney, Don Hanai, to the scene. Is your client at all concerned about what may have been recorded? Mr. Prado has never indicated such to me. When he wasn't defending mobsters, Hanai served as the chair of the Democratic Party. He was a man with a lot of power in Youngstown, and he seemed to find the whole thing amusing. Somewhere along the line, the FBI picked up some information, maybe that there were some questionable characters hanging out there, but uh, I have been to the restaurant several times, and uh, the food is excellent. I recommend it, as a matter of fact. Do you see any mafia tentacles in the political circles around here? As far as I am concerned, the mafia is a paper tiger that was created by certain individuals so that they could slay the paper tiger. I don't even think there's any such thing as a mafia in the Youngstown area. Around that time, Don Hanai had his hands full. The race for Mahoning County Sheriff was nearing the finish line, and the front runner was not someone Hanai wanted to win. It's time to stop rubber stamping patronage in political deals. Together we can strike a blow against political bosses. Jim Trafkin had gone from political nobody to a serious contender, and it was clear that someone out there felt threatened. No one could tell us where this smear sheet originated or who's responsible. Authorities vowed to check it out. A smear sheet was circulating in people's mailboxes. Trafficking signs and posters were being vandalized. Someone was playing dirty. Party chairman Don Hanai may be to blame. Hanai claims he's always made out to be the boogeyman, and this time he's being blamed for someone else's dirty tricks. We haven't made an endorsement in the sheriff's race. You'd be for anybody you want to be for in the sheriff's race, but uh, they're all Democrats anyhow. They're probably going to vote for him anyhow. Hanai acknowledges with vandalized traffic and signs and the impression someone's out to get him, whoever produced the smear campaign also created a large sympathy vote for trafficant, possibly clinching his election by a wide margin. Hanai couldn't stop Trafficant's momentum. In November of 1980, Trafficant won the sheriff's election handily. James Trafficant has prided himself a maverick, one who can beat the odds, defeating the incumbent and beating the Republican opposition by a landslide. He was sworn in in front of the people of Youngstown. To the best of my knowledge, skill, and ability. Congratulations, Jim, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. This is where the car Joe DeRose was driving was found burning last Thursday night on a lane of a country road near Peninsula, Ohio. 
The force of three explosions scattered car parts in a man's glove. There was no trace of DeRose or human remains in the car or nearby woods. Joe DeRose, the hitman for the Pittsburgh faction, had disappeared. His car was found burned. The 1976 Grand Prix belongs to DeRose's girlfriend. Inside was a woman's magazine. In the trunk, her license plates. Giving the impression of a professional hit, but was it? Is DeRose really dead or in hiding? It's clear his exit is significant. The question is, was it by DeRose's choice? That is, if he had a choice. After DeRose's car was found, Bob Croner went to DeRose's apartment in Pittsburgh to talk to his girlfriend. She's obviously upset, and she gives me a consent to search their apartment. So we're searching the apartment, and uh, I'm in the kitchen, and I opened up one drawer that I called the bread box because it had the aluminum box that people used to put their bread in. When I opened the slide it back and in the aluminum part of it, there are a couple cassette tapes. And I'm wondering, what the heck are these? It's not like uh, Elvis Presley or they're not really labeled. So I took the tapes and I took them into the next room, the living area, where they had a tape player. And I said, well, guys, I said, put this in the tape player and see if these are things we should take. We don't want to go sit every fucking day. We got a misunderstanding. We got this. We got that. They put it in a tape player, and the first thing I hear is Orly Karabia's voice, which I recognize. Orly Karabia was a mobster who ran Cleveland's interest in Youngstown with his brother, Charlie, whose voice Croner could also hear. And there's a third voice on the tape, one Croner doesn't recognize at first, a guy the Karabia brothers keep calling Jimmy. Jimmy, what he's trying to say, are you with us? We had gotten information that these guys were fighting over trafficking. We had no reason to believe that he was in that arena with these people. The future, as far as I'm concerned, is whatever deal you make now. The future, trafficking tells the Carabias, is whatever deal you make now. You tell me what it is. We're, we're what your reaction is? Very surprised, to say the least. Because here was Jim Trafficken, the candidate who promised to clean up Youngstown, soliciting a bribe from the mob. Now look, I did take your money, though, and you do have an interest. Now work it out. I don't want no problem. I said, we're taking those tapes. On the next episode of Crooked City, the FBI sees an opportunity with Trafficking. With his cooperation, we can get both sides. But Trafficking has other ideas. It's a powerful and compelling case that FBI agents should be put in jail for. And if I have anything to do with it, they're going to go to jail. That's next time on Crooked City. Crooked City is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. The show is produced by Catherine Sullivan, Olivia Briley, Zach St. Louis, and Alexa Burke. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. 
Story editing is by me, Mark Smirling, and Ryan Swiker. Kevin Shepard is our associate producer. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Donia Suleiman. Johnny Cecatelli, our local producer in Youngstown. George Drabing-Hicks did the mix. Sound design by George Drabing-Hicks and Ryan Swiker. Music by Kenny Cusiak, John Cusiak, and Marmoset. Our title track is Hurricane Heart Attack by The Warlocks. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Crooked City Pod. If you've enjoyed Crooked City, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.